All right, if you want to turn to, Efe- uh, not Ephesians, Ecclesiastes 3. That would be a very vain endeavor if you turn to Ephesians. You would be lost and life would seem very meaningless. <clears throat> All right, um, our boys have been into, uh, so we have a couple boys, ages 8 and 7, and they've been into Legos for quite some time, uh, which is the best toy just to be clear. Uh, and as they get older, the Legos get more complicated, right? The sets get bigger. You move from tens of pieces to hundreds to thousands. Uh, but it's not much of a problem because, as you know, Legos come with these great instructions. And they're very step-by-step, lots of pictures, easy to follow. It's not like IKEA instructions where what you're looking at has no resemblance to what you're putting together. And if you've ever put together Legos, you know that there's something very satisfying about it. You start with hundreds or thousands of pieces, and step by step, you go through the way, and each one finds its perfect spot, and you start to see this thing take shape, and eventually you have this beautiful masterpiece. You get somewhat the same satisfaction in building anything uh, that you have a kit for. But imagine that you didn't have step-by-step instructions, and you just had the pictures to look at. You might get some of the pieces right, some of the bigger, more obvious ones, but there would be a lot of them where you would put it in one spot and, and then realize down the row that's not the right spot, you'd have to take it apart, you'd, you'd make a lot of mistakes. You wouldn't know the purpose for so many pieces. To take it even a step further, imagine that you didn't have a picture. And then you were just told, this is supposed to be a pirate ship, or this is the Millennium Falcon. Well, the frustration would increase dramatically. Um, You'd be left wondering, how does this scrambled mess of different shapes and colors of pieces come together to make something beautiful? Well, this is something what life is like. We have some idea of what we're working towards, some idea of this beautiful, um, worthwhile, satisfying life. And we have all these scrambled pieces of our lives, our relationships, our careers, our endeavors and, and desires, our families, our ideas, our abilities. We have our past experiences and good and bad, joys and sorrows, our upbringing. But we struggle to know how all of it can come together to build something beautiful, something satisfying, something worthy. Many pieces don't seem to fit into that puzzle. Um, In fact, many pieces seem to be working against that. It's like you have some Playmobil pieces mixed in with the Legos, and you know there's no way that's going to fit into this, this thing. A lot of chaos and contradiction. Well, as we've seen, this is something of what Ecclesiastes confronts us with this vanity of life. We want to believe that there is some end goal that, and some finished product that is beautiful and satisfying and worthwhile, and that every part of our lives is working towards building that. But try as we may, we can't figure it out. We can't put all the pieces together. We don't see how it's coming together in the way that we want. And so in the words of Ecclesiastes, life seems vain, Meaningless, wearisome, and unhappy. 
Now, as we've said many times, and we will continue to say, this is not where Ecclesiastes leaves us. This is real. We feel this. But Ecclesiastes, nor the rest of the Bible, leaves us there. And so one of the rays of hope that we begin to see as we get into Ecclesiastes and and move throughout the Bible is this. While everything seems vain and meaningless to us, nothing is vain or meaningless to God. While we are bound to time and seeming chance and randomness and we don't have control ultimately over what life throws at us, God is not bound to time and there is nothing outside of his control. What is chaos to us is not chaos to him. And not only that, he is working every detail in our lives and in the universe together for a good purpose. Every piece is being fit together as it was intended to, to form a beautiful masterpiece. So this is the ray of light that today's passage introduces us to. Um, In a word, it's God's providence or God's purposeful sovereignty over all of life. And it is a truth that offers unending comfort and hope in a life that is frustrating and vain. So let's begin at chapter 3, starting at verse 1. We'll read the first eight verses here that are you will, you will recognize. It says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, this is a very well-known poem, if you will, in our day. It's found in songs. You hear it at lots of Um, memorial services, and probably because it's very poetic, it's rhythmic, it has a certain sense of beauty to it, and it's true to our experience. It describes life as we know it. But in context here, the point is not so beautiful. The big idea is that there are these times and seasons of life, and they are coming at us, good and bad, joys and sorrows, and we ultimately have no control over them. We ultimately don't control when and how and how often they, they come at us. It just is. This is life. Um, the list gives us things that just are, neither bad or good. Planting, plucking up, keeping silent, speaking, casting away, gathering. And it also gives us things that are uh, clearly good and bad. Being born, dying, mourning, dancing. Weeping, laughing, love, hate, war, peace. Uh, This is not an endorsement of any of this. It is simply stating the fact of life. We experience these different times and seasons of life. We have great highs and joys, and we have great and difficult 
heart-wrenching lows. And the point is also not do everything you can to fill your life with all of these joys and everything you can to not experience any of these, these lows. The point here, at least, is you don't have control over that. Of course, we want the joys and we don't want the sorrows, but ultimately, no matter what we do, we're going to experience both. I read recently of a 19th century Romanian dictator, um, Romanian dictator, Nicolae Ceausescu, who supposedly had people go in front of him and um, I guess when the leaves were turning colors, and they would paint all the leaves green. Whenever he, wherever he went, he had people painting leaves green. Uh, I couldn't fully verify this or why he did it. I couldn't find a lot of information. But regardless, it's a fitting illustration of what we often try to do with life. How do we try to create an alternate reality? Uh, we don't want to, rather than accepting the changing seasons and times, we, we try to keep it always spring or summer. Rather than acknowledging the, the pain and, and loss and sorrow that come our way, we try to live in a fantasy world of, of control, of distractions and diversions, of busyness and numbing ourselves in, in ways that ultimately are just playing tricks on our minds, right? Trying to paint leaves green. They're going to fall anyways. And we do this because to face the fact square on that we ultimately have no control over life and all of this stuff is going to come at us is depressing and devastating. And so the author's first conclusion in verse 9, he says, what gain has the worker from his toil? Uh, this is, we've heard this before. The book started with it. It's the it's the question of Ecclesiastes. What is the point of life? And it's a rhetorical question because it appears that there is none. We long for and expect some gain or satisfaction and worthiness and lasting significance from our life, from the toil of living, but we don't find it. Everywhere we look, uh, the key to life, the answer to life, the solution to life seems to elude us. But then the author begins to give us a ray of hope. So look at verses 10 through 15. This is, the, this is all we're going to cover, but we're going to take some time to work through this. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been, and God seeks what is driven away. Now, before we get to the ray of hope, there is a further evidence, an expression of frustration here, right? It says, God has put eternity into man's heart. Oh, that's, that's positive. That sounds good. 
yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. Um, we have, as one commentator says, a deep-seated desire, a compulsive drive to know the character, composition, and meaning of the world and to discern its purpose and destiny. We, we want the Lego instructions, right? We want to know step by step and how everything fits together and to see the finished product in all of its beauty and satisfaction, but we, we can't find them. And what Ecclesiastes says here is that this is by design. Apparently, God has some purpose for giving us these longings and desires, putting eternity in our hearts, but then not allowing us to fully grasp the meaning and purpose of everything. Why would he do that? That brings us to the ray of hope. God's providence, or purposeful sovereignty, and our response to that. We're not just talking about God's sovereignty or power or him ruling over all. We are specifically talking about God having purpose, a good purpose, in all that he does, providentially ordaining, ordering all things for a purpose. And we'll ask, we'll look at three aspects to this, the extent of God's providence, the purpose of God's providence, and the effect of God's providence. And kind of work through this passage. So first, what is the extent of God's providence? So look what the author says. He says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. And goes on to say what God has done from beginning to end. Now, this is meant to turn our attention back to the opening verses, the lists of pairs in verses 2 through 8. What God has done from beginning to end includes all of these things. Everything between being born and dying, weeping and laughing, seeking and losing, loving and hating, war and peace. None of these are outside of the extent of what God has ordained. They all fall within his providence. More than that, the everything that he has made beautiful in its time includes all of this. We'll come back to that. That's the purpose. But first, this is something that all of Scripture confirms over and over and over again. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Matthew 10.29, Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. There's no chance or randomness in a sparrow falling to the ground. Ephesians 1.11 speaks of the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then even the most evil event in history, the death of Jesus, we are told in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, in that example, we, we learned that there are some other complementary truths to this. We see that there is, especially when we are talking about evil, other factors at work. There's human sin, rebellion, the devil, the brokenness of the world brought about by sin, and God delights in none of this. God will deal justly with all of this, and none of this can be blamed on God. But as was Jesus' death, while evil men 
killed him and were held responsible for it. It ultimately happened not by chance, not by some rogue Roman soldier going out from God's will, but according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, exactly as God had intended. Now, we logically struggle with this. We have difficulty pairing together our agency and responsibility and and God's sovereignty. There's certainly mystery here that we are not able to solve. But aside from the scriptural evidence for this, think about the alternative. Can you imagine if there were just one individual out there who was operating outside of God's providence, who was making decisions and doing things that did not ultimately fit into God's purpose and plan, who, who could not be used for God's ultimate ends, who was just literally out of control. I mean, think about it personally. If your decisions and actions ultimately and finally determine the future apart from God's sovereign ordaining, what a crippling weight that would be. How could we trust God if that were the case? How could the, the wonderful comfort of Romans 8.28 uh, give us any comfort if that were the case? That for those who love God, all things work together for good. So what is the extent of God's providence or purposeful ordaining of all things? It has no limits. As Abraham Kuyper famously put it, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. God is working all things together for his purpose. But we need to say more. To, to merely state that is not really any comfort in and of itself. Uh, because life could just be up to fate. Uh, to, to merely state that God is sovereign over every detail of the world um, the things are going to happen a certain way, and I ultimately have no control over it. That's, that's not exactly comforting in and of itself. And so second, what is the purpose of God's providence? Verse 11 ought to shock us. After reading verse eight, verses 2 through 8 and the conclusion in verse 9, that, that there seems to be no gain from our toil in this worth, everything from our perspective is vain and meaningless. And then we get to verse 11. It says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Uh, this word beautiful can mean uh, appropriate or fitting, like a Lego piece. Fits right in. It has a perfect place to go. It's beautiful when you put it together. Lovely. That's right where it goes, and it fulfills its purpose. This is not so much about there being beauty in life, if we go looking for it. We know that to be the case a child being born is beautiful. A sunset is beautiful. Friends being reconciled together. There are many beautiful things in life. But this is saying much more than that. This is about everything, every act of life, every situation and event of life, being turned or used by God some, some way, somehow, into something beautiful or appropriate. And so this is one way that God is vastly different than us. Because as we've 
see, as the author of Ecclesiastes makes clear, we go through this life and everything seems vain and meaningless and, and frustrating and unhappy. We can't see how things are working together for good. But this is not the case with God. On this all-important matter of purpose and direction, and God is not like us. To us, we cry, all is vanity. God says, nothing is vanity. Nothing is in vain. How is this possible? Obviously, much of life seems to fly in the face of this assertion. A baby being born is beautiful, but what about losing a child? Friends coming together, of course, is beautiful, but what about relationships being torn apart? Peace is great, but war is not, not so great. And many of the things in the list, we, we would have the Bible behind us to, to assert that they are not good things. Death, hate, mourning, how can there be beauty or appropriateness in all of this? Well, we will never see something as fitting, appropriate, beautiful if we don't actually understand what its purpose is. Right? We will never get what God is trying to tell us here and throughout the Bible if we don't understand why we exist, what we are for, what our lives are for, what the world is for. And this is exactly why this is so difficult for us, because the purposes that our world puts out there for our lives and that our hearts seek after are often vastly different with God's purposes. In many ways, we tend to believe that we exist to order our lives as we wish and to extract the most pleasure and success and joy and the least pain and discomfort out of life. And if we believe that God exists, we tend to think that he exists to help us in this quest, that God is in service to us. This is our due from God. Whether we put it into words or not, we live like we are at the center of the universe and God is orbiting around us just catering to our every wish and need. And if this is the case, there's no way we're going to see appropriateness or beauty or goodness in things like death and, and war, hardship, hatred, pain. So what then is the purpose of life? Well, we get a hint of it here in verse 14. Verse 14 says, Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, and here's the key phrase, so that people fear before him. Isn't it wonderful when Scripture gives us a purpose statement? Here's why God is doing this, so that people fear before him. The fear of God. Uh, this is what the end of Ecclesiastes tells us as well, right? The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, don't misunderstand this. Uh, in light of the rest of Scripture, the fear of God is something that leads to wisdom, right? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But it's also something that leads to joy and peace and comfort and hope. To, to fear God is to make much of him and to do so willingly and joyfully. It's to see him who, for who he actually is in all of his greatness and glory and worthiness and goodness and compassion and love. 
and to respond appropriately and live for and before Him. This is put wonderfully in the, the first question of the Westminster Catechism. It says, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What is our purpose in life to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? And as, as many others have argued, these are one and the same thing. You don't get one without the other. God is not pleased when we are outwardly glorifying Him, worshiping Him, but we do it grudgingly and we have no joy in Him. On the other hand, God is not pleased when we say, well, God just wants whatever I want. He wants me to be happy, and so whatever means, I'm going to go out and find happiness, and God's going to bless that. No, glorifying God and enjoying Him come together. He wants all of us, not just our outward obedience and devotion, but our hearts and our loves and delight in Him. And you see this in what God reveals and what, how He speaks to us and how He comes to us. He doesn't just come in authority and power and, and frighten us into submission. There are times where He does something like that, but that's certainly not the whole picture of God. No, He also comes in humility and, and gentleness and compassion and love. Jesus, God comes into the earth in the person of Jesus and shows immense compassion for sinners and sufferers, and even willingly, joyfully, gives his life to suffer and die for us. He shows us in, in doing this both his love and his worthiness. Uh, you know, the, the gospel, the cross of Christ, is, is, shows us in the clearest colors the heart and the character of God and is meant to awaken us to both love Him and submit to Him, to glorify Him and to enjoy Him. And so back to our point. If this is the purpose of life, to fear God, that is to joyfully live for Him and before Him in all our life, Ecclesiastes and the rest of Scripture is telling us that this is what God is working towards, in all things. This is the good and beautiful and fitting and appropriate end to which he is working in both war and peace, weeping and laughing, new birth, death, seeking and losing. I mean, to, to think about this in specific ways, cannot the dissolution of a relationship, which is so heart-wrenching, can it not be the catalyst for someone crying out to God and finding God? Cannot the experience of going to war or living in a time of war that just disrupts everything be the catalyst that God uses to draw people to himself? I mean, cannot the last 18 months of complete chaos be the catalyst for which God uses to draw people to himself? And in your own lives, you can think about many of these things as well. Experiencing the death of a loved one, a frustration at work, failed ambitions and dreams, difficult marriage, financial struggles. Could these not be God's providential means of drawing you to seek Him more fervently, trust in Him more deeply, and find him in the end to be more 
sufficient and satisfying than you thought. Many of you are familiar with the story of Joni Erickson Tata, injured in a diving accident when she was 17 and paralyzed from the shoulders down. Many years later, she, she wrote, So here I sit, glad that I have not been healed on the outside, but glad that I have been healed on the inside, healed from my own self-centered wants and wishes. And then she wonders, maybe the truly handicapped people are the ones that don't need God as much or the ones that don't think they need God as much, which is a radically different perspective on life, on what success and happiness and handicappedness and weakness actually is. And this leads to the third and final consideration, and that is the effect of God's providence. You see, we really only have three options before us when it comes to living this life. We can either try to ignore the vanity and the frustration and the meaninglessness of life through endless distractions and diversions and comforts and pleasures. The Bible calls these idols, false gods offering false comforts. The problem is none of these has the, have the power over death, and they merely uh, offer a spray paint veneer of, of reality, like spray painting leaves green. Or we can accept the vanity and frustration of life and wallow in pity and despair. At least we're being honest, sort of. Or we can entrust every aspect to our lives to the one who is providentially ordaining all things for a good purpose. Just like children trust their parents and give to their parents the, the ability to make all sorts of decisions for them. Children don't want to decide like when we need to go shopping and when we need to get this and that, that. They trust their parents to handle all of those things. Just as we find satisfaction in, in trusting the Lego instructions and to lead us to the right way. Just as when you get in a car, you are trusting the design and the engineering and the, the handiwork of s hundreds of people to put that car together in a way that's going to lead you to, to, to turn on and lead you to a place. You don't have to think about all of those things. Just like when you order something on Amazon from overseas, you trust a hundred different processes and systems and transactions to happen so that, well, right now this is not a great analogy, but it gets to your door. So in a much, much, much more extensive and flawless and beautiful and comforting and satisfying way, you can trust God to order your life. And we can do this even when we've made a mess of our lives. We can do this when others have made a mess of our lives. We can do this when life looks nothing like we expected it to. The task of making our lives count, of fitting all of these pieces together in a way that creates this masterpiece is not on us. It is not something we have the wisdom to do or the power to do. But God does. And all who come to him, all who trust in him, 
he says he will work all things together for good. Not a single thing you have done or that has been done to you or will do or will be done to you is outside of his settled determination to work it for good. To turn it around to be fitting and beautiful. To God, nothing is in vain. John Piper says in his book, Providence, and here he's speaking specifically of God's providence over sin, but it applies to God's providence in general. The biblical authors do not bring up the issue of God's purposeful sovereignty merely to validate a theological viewpoint, but rather to humble human pride, intensify human worship, shatter human hopelessness, and put ballast in the battered boat of human faith, steel in the spine of human courage, and love in the human heart that sees no possible way forward. So as you come face to face with the seeming vanity and meaningless and frustration of life, which we all know, trust in him. Cling to him, endure trials patiently through him, Receive joys and blessings with gratitude towards him. And hope for the day when you will no longer see things dimly as in a mirror, but will see him face to face and will see the beautiful handiwork that he has been working in your life and in this world from the beginning of time. Let's pray.